Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO at the Aspen Ideas Festival on all things artificial intelligence. I'm strongly in favor of human speech, not computer speech. So free speech for humans, not computers. From the war in Ukraine, the future of tech startups, and the 2024 presidential election. The short-term danger is misinformation. For example, the 2024 elections are going to be a mess because social media is not protecting us from false generative AI. A near coup in Russia. Longview Global's Dewardrick McNeil on the long-term stability of Vladimir Putin and what investors are watching. There's a lot of risk still here, and I'm not sure that we're seeing that in any real way in the markets. Plus, a 5G deadline could delay your flight starting next week. And don't think we forgot about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg's big baby fight. In that match, I want to be the ref. It's Monday, June 26th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by, Joe, in three, two, one. His mic, here. Good morning, and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Uh, the futures, the, the stock market has been so interesting, we need someone with a real historical perspective. Someone that, you know, if, if we could get someone who had been at Barron's for like 60 years or something, it's the guy we would have called I could for. give you 15. You can. Yeah, that's how long I was there. <laughs> Mike, it's good to have you here. I'm Joe Kern along with Mike Santoli. Becky is off today. Andrew is around. He's not exactly right here. He's in a, uh, I'll give you a hint, he's in a place where uh, celebrities love to look at the mountains. You been? I went to school in Colorado, Once still have not ago. been to Aspen. Once been a long time ago. Been everywhere else, but uh, Andrew will join us from the Aspen Ideas Festival a little bit later. Last week, eh, they said to Mike it was kind of a crummy week, but not much really happened uh, when it was all said and done. And maybe not surprising, yeah. given what the S&P is up, did anyone think it was going to be up 13% for yeah. the year? Total return year to date, just about 15% with dividends. So it's remarkable. Now, people are going to pull it apart and say it's only been very selective, narrow, group of stocks. But even the equal-weighted S&P is a 4% year-to-date, a little more. I mean, you, you, you would have signed up for an 8% year, probably, for the average stock. Uh, last week's pullback seemed kind of textbook. You know, we were kind of overheated going into it. Uh, it wasn't really driven by a whole lot in terms of bond, uh, bond market pricing and new macro stuff. It seemed like kind of technical, mechanical. We got some quarter-end stuff happening. Too. We mentioned uh, Bitcoin in the headlines. We wouldn't necessarily do that all the time. And it, it used to be correlated, highly correlated. But last time it started going up from 17 or whatever, the market was not really participating. Then the market kind of caught up. Then Bitcoin pulled back on what looked like specific um, instances there, you know, more problems with, uh, with exchanges. Yeah. Then all of a sudden BlackRock's interested That's and right. Charles Schwab yeah. is interested and, and Citadel. And that seems to, you know, it's going to its own now. Right. It has nothing to do with risk on or risk off. It seems like the institutionalization of Bitcoin specifically, it's uh, that's one of the weird effects of a lot of the scrutiny on the exchanges and a lot of the intermediaries and a lot of the other types of coins is that Bitcoin itself seems to stand apart from that. You know, it seems like it it's the thing that, it, you know, the SEC is not going after it. <laughs> the weirdest thing last week was we had that Nassim Taleb on who said that he didn't like Bitcoin now because it's not even good for untraceable transactions. <laughs> the thing is, it may be good for transaction, for petty transactions, small, small amount of money, but it's not good for real money laundering because it's very traceable. <laughs> and three, it is pretty much in the first time in the history of the world we have had 
a cult, you know, a cult coupled with a financial instrument. It's not good for money laundering. It's not good for... That was the total criticism of why Bitcoin could never be a a real asset. It was because the only thing it was used for was criminal activity. So now it's a bad thing that you can be, that it actually is traceable. I mean, look, uh, $100 bills in gold have served that purpose forever. Uh, It's essentially trying to be untraceable. Yeah. We've done fine with money laundering and and, uh, things like that before Bitcoin. The way I've always looked at it is there's no correct or incorrect price for it. And, you know, the criticism that, oh, there's no reason for it really to exist as an asset is, well, gold either. I mean, you know, you can kind of just just say. To me, if you take the six things that make gold valuable historically, you can ascribe all six of them to Bitcoin. Pretty much. That's what I finally figured out. And if you're unbanked, if you're over in Russia, if you're anywhere where, where... there's anything questionable when you have an iPhone, you can have something solid right. on your... Okay. I, I also feel like people are willing to put big numbers in terms of capitalization on abstract ideas right now. You want to talk about t- t- stocks in the, in the NASDAQ that kind of fit that bill, right. too, and that's kind of what we're Well, I've heard that you know, Bitcoin is just so volatile. Yeah, how's Netflix or how's Disney? How's the sure. most blue-chip well, stock that can, move, that can go down 30 40 50%? Yeah. But we digress. Uh, Despite uh, declines for the major averages on Friday, the Dow, S&P 500, and NASDAQ are all in positive territory for even uh, June, the month so far. Treasuries, I just was looking at the uh, inversion again. It's not not as big as it was, but we still certainly uh, inverted between the two-year and the 10-year, about 100 basis points, right around there. Uh, 471 on the two-year. I don't know, if we're going to five and a half, it still makes, no, on, on uh, the Fed, if the Fed's going to five and a half, it makes no sense that we're at 369. Somebody thinks they're smarter than the Fed. Maybe, maybe uh, they're or they're not going to stay there long. I mean, that's what the market's really saying, right. is that over the, you know, over the next couple of year window, that they're, they're going to peak out five and a half or more, and then yeah. it's going down from there. Plus, it also suggests <clears throat> that what they're doing against inflation is going to work. Right, but it's pretty amazing that it's like, you want to invest money, Risk-free for 10 years, here's what you get. Mm-hmm. 3.7. That's it. Well, what's interesting and is... be happy. You can get 5% yields. for a for month, yeah. but if you're really going to go long-term, we're not giving it to you because it, it's not going to be there. It's, right. it's not doable to give you 3.7. Or 3.7 is all you're getting, which is crazy. Yeah. Stand and advice. Track, take. Cue, Andrew. Joe, what's going on, my friend? Ideas just... I mean, are they just everywhere? Out there they're, just like fly, I, they're, flying, like, they're, they're like shooting they're stars. Everywhere. I saw a couple. I saw a You're couple. You're going to see a beautiful, ma- there is a beautiful mountain behind me. I know, I know it's, it's early in the morning, so you Which can't one? see it yet. But give not us, a, give us some Ajax, time. Right? Which one's back there? You know, actually, uh, that is true, guys. I th- is this Ajax no behind us? I think if you, well, actually, I think Ajax is going to be farther over. But yeah, uh, the answer is yes. The answer is uh, our team here is saying Ajax, great mountain, right? Perfect weather, I, I would wager. We had lots of, uh, <clears throat> lots of stuff going on back here, but 300 days of sunshine a year out in Colorado. And it, it, in, I mean, it's great for skiing, but in June, it's just pristine, isn't it? Is it was it nice? It, I, uh, look, I only got here last night. Uh, there's been uh, a number of uh, sessions and things already that uh, have gotten started, but yeah, beautiful. Can't complain. Beautiful. Uh, this is, uh, I know it's hard work. Did you hard have to bring a bunch? I mean, you, you are always overflowing with ideas uh, as you know sitting across from me you've got a lot of them but uh, did you bring a lot of them with you out did you, <laughs> did you bring a lot of them with you out there 
I, I've tried to bring a couple, uh, and we're going to try to get some ideas uh, on the program this morning. Uh, we've got uh, Eric Schmidt, uh, formerly of Google, of course. That should we'll be interesting. I know we're he scares me about AI. That, yeah, he's worried. We got he, he's got a little bit. Yeah, uh, Eric has some long-term concerns, and he's smart. He does very smart. Top story this morning, of course, investors on edge after what was a wild weekend in Russia, some calling the armed rebellion the biggest threat to Vladimir Putin since he took office more than two decades ago. Joining us right now to talk about the broader impact of the revolt is Dwardwick McNeil, Longview Global Managing Director, CNBC contributor. Good morning to you. Uh, it is, uh, dare I say, the talk of the town, the talk of the world. Um, it's been the talk here at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Uh, let's just before we even get into the implications, what do you think actually happened and what do you think is about to happen next? It's a good question, Andrew. Good, good morning to you. Listen, I think we had a situation where uh, the Wagner group uh, certainly felt that they were shouldering a lion's share of the responsibilities out on the front line, not getting what they need from the Ministry of Defense. There's certainly some personal issues going on there between uh, Prigozhin and the Minister of Defense. So I think all of this boiled over, uh, Andrew, I think. Uh, it was a wild weekend for sure. I have no idea what's what's happening next within Russia. You know, I've been thinking about this in terms of what it means for Russia's external relationships, primarily uh, China. Uh, you may uh, recall, Andrew, that the deputy foreign minister for Russia, uh, Andrei Rudinko, was in Beijing, uh, certainly trying to reassure Beijing that everything is fine, nothing to see here and uh, trying to get reassurance from Beijing. Uh, but right. uh, it, it's been a, a wild weekend for sure. So how do you think it changes the relationship if it does at all? And, and let's just say right now and stipulate, you look at where the, the markets are this morning, down, but not in any meaningful way. Should, should there be more? Is, is this a, a riskier situation than, 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 than investors and the world are expecting? Look, I think it is hard to see how uh, we're not pricing in greater risk over the near and, and longer term, for sure. Look, Putin survived, and so I, I guess people are breathing a sigh of relief there. But uh, this is this is a regime on life support. With respect to China, you know, they, they got the reassurance that they were looking for publicly. But Beijing is extremely worried about the instability that we all saw this weekend and what that may mean for the long term for Vladimir Putin. And you know, this is not just any state. This is one of the major nuclear powers in the world. So China does not want an implosion or fail state on its borders. So, you know, for me, there's a lot of risk still here. And I'm not sure that we're seeing that uh, in any real way in the markets this morning. But we're, okay, so we're to not the extent, the though, to the, to the extent that you would price Price that in. Price that risk in. I don't know if you think that's risk to the oil markets. I don't know how, how, how you would uh, stipulate that risk, but how, 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 would you, um, how would you measure it? Well, I think to your point, uh, Andrew, being one of the major producers of, of oil and gas, I think you have to look there for sure. Uh, but the broader commodities markets as well. I mean, let's talk about the Wagner Group for a minute. You know, these guys are not just on the front lines in Ukraine. They happen to be in a number of places where they are protecting uh, states that are extractive states. So a lot of minerals. Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of potential risk here. We have no idea what's going to happen uh, to the Wagner Group's portfolio. So I just don't see enough in terms of the pre-open of a real concern that, that I have. 
for these uh, near-term and perhaps uh, certainly long-term risks. And, and finally, where, where, where do you think or what kind of implication do you think this has on uh, the war with Ukraine? It's a good question. Look, it's hard to say. We know that Wagner was the most effective fighting force on the front lines. I don't see how you reintegrate or integrate a mutinied force into your regular army. I think this has to be to the upside for Ukraine. But look, it, it's, um, there's a lot still unknown about how this force is going to be redeployed, if they're going to be redeployed. And if not, I would say advantage Ukraine. Okay. Duarte, thank you for your analysis of it all. Uh, we'll be continuing to watch it, of course. Mike thank Santoli. Thank you very much, Andrew. Mike, by the way, are you, are you surprised? Are you surprised the market hasn't moving more? Not particularly, just because, um, you know, the ways in which normally the markets would get disturbed, whether it would be commodity prices or something like that, doesn't seem like uh, are very much in play. So at this point, it feels like uh, scary headlines that the market doesn't have anything right now to really process. Uh, we'll see if that changes. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. When people say that AI is going to you know, take over humanity, it's going to... They, they've but, watched too many but movies. But what is that, though? What, that, that, but, that's a movie. This is Squawk Pod from a bustling Times Square and from a Rocky Mountain High. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm at the Aspen Ideas Festival along with Joe Kernan and Mike Santoli back at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Becky is off this morning. Gentlemen, uh, great to see you. It's been a great show so far. A lot more coming up from here, a lot more coming up uh, from New York as well. Joe? Thanks, Andrew. Relative calm. Uh, Returning to Russia after the seizure of a strategic city by the Wagner Group militia on Saturday. The group's a leader, Prigozhin, has uh, since apparently uh, been granted amnesty. Here's where things stand uh, at this hour. Just a short time ago, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, issued a statement on the Kremlin's website congratulating participants of an industrial forum. It was P- Putin's first communication since his address to Russia over the weekend during the crisis, although it wasn't clear when today's statement was actually recorded. Putin hasn't addressed the deal with Prigozhin. Russia's defense minister also made his first public appearance since the uprising, inspecting uh, troops in Ukraine, and Russia's prime minister called on the country to remain united behind uh, President Putin. But U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the mutiny against Russia's military did expose cracks in Moscow. He called Prigozhin's challenge of Putin extraordinary. And it was something to behold, Andrew. It wasn't it? Um, it was it was truly something uh, to behold. Are you surprised, Joe? I mean, we we're talking to Mike Santoli about where the markets are this morning relative to what seemed like something that felt like it was going off the rails over the weekend. I was surprised and also, uh, I don't know, uh, unsettled, I guess. And, and we have actually said for, I don't know, there's, there's some people actually... Uh, relieved that Putin is okay and going to stay in power. So that just shows you right. the, the fear of, you know, I'm yep. not calling him a devil, but, you know, the expression, the devil you know. Uh, the and devil I don't you know. know. It, you know, with a, we know about the amount of, of nuclear weaponry still in, in the, uh, the former USSR, and it's, it's frightening right. and daunting. And, I, I mean, it's just hard to, you've seen the clock, You've seen the doomsday clock and things like this just make me 
understand why we're, I don't know, we're less than a minute from, from potentially uh, something that would right. be really, really frightening. So I, it's, it's tough. We're not experts in, in, uh, in, in who the uh, successor to Putin would be at this point or what type of individual that would be. Andrew, it's just all open to conjecture, right? Right. But it's, uh, it's there, was a fa- there was a fascinating sort of impromptu session set up yesterday with Andrea Mitchell and, and Walter Isaacson uh, about this issue. And, and, and the devil, you know, issue was uh, was a big part of it. By the way, we're going to talk to Eric Schmidt a little bit later. And I know we'd be you'd think we'd be talking about A.I. That'll be a big topic. But he was in Ukraine uh, and we're going to spend some time talking to him about that, um, given the, the technology of war as well. So um, a lot going on this morning. As summer travel gets into full swing, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is warning the nation's airlines of potential flight disruptions starting this week. These could stem from more powerful 5G signals that the nation's wireless carriers are getting ready to turn on. Buttigieg says only planes that have onboard equipment upgraded will be able to land when visibility is poor. Do you have any um, deja vu from... 1999 from Y2K. It reminds me of the same. Oh, in terms of this? Yeah, yeah. 5G. We've got this technological time bomb about to go up. If we don't... It doesn't seem quite as pervasive. Not as pervasive, but maybe a lot more serious. than. But but at the time, we thought Y2K. What was that, Andrew? Andrew, I don't know if he can hear us or not. You with us, Andrew? I'm here. I'm here. How come that? Ask Eric Schmidt why that didn't happen, will you? He's a, a, a genius about uh, technology and everything. How could we think it was going to happen, and then it didn't happen? Do you remember what I'm talking? about? And this, this is not well, the same thing. There's obviously. a line of thinking that because we were so afraid of it, is people that what invested to make, take care of it before it became an issue. Yeah. So we're Fox, relitigating something from 23 years ago. Because of the 5G problem, we're looking at this, we're on the cusp of this as well. Is this similar? Do we need, uh, I mean, is it, uh, all these things are going to break down if we don't, if we don't update everything? I guess, right? I hope it's worthwhile for, for you downloading your, your, you know, Better Call Saul episodes more quickly. Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We are at the Aspen Ideas Festival and we are joined by a special guest. Eric Schmidt is here. Of course, the former Google CEO and chairman, uh, executive chairman, he's the co-founder now of Schmidt Futures and the co-author uh, of The Age of AI and Our Human Future. And we should mention that NBC uh, News uh, Group is a media partner of the Aspen Ideas Festival. And it's great to see you, sir. Good morning. Thank you for waking up early. <laughs> it course. is early here, I know. Uh, so much to talk to you about. I want to talk about AI and all of it, but I also want to talk about what we saw over the weekend, um, in part because you just came back from Ukraine. and had so many sort of interesting lessons about the, the intersection of technology, frankly, and war. What did you see? Um, well, first, I, I don't know Prigozhin, but the Wagner Group was responsible for some of the greater atrocities in Ukraine. So the less of them, the better. Um, Ukraine at the moment is, to some degree, an artillery war with very well-defined lines, line, you know, line, line, right. trenches, mines, and so forth, and line and line. And imagine the courage of somebody trying to get across that line. You get shot at by uh, drones, you get machine gunned, you have mines, you eventually get to the other side, you hit your target, and then artillery behind that takes you out. It's an enormously daunting challenge, and it's going to take some time. What was it like being there? Um, The morale in Ukraine is surprisingly high, and the air raid sirens go off in the cities all the time, and they just ignore them. So did you ignore them? Or uh, yes, I followed the, the my host told right. me to behave this way. 
And the most interesting thing about Ukraine is that people can normalize almost anything, including a tremendous tragedy. Um, speak, though, to the issue of maybe the, the intersection of technology and this war in terms of what you saw with drones and, what, and actually how AI is impacting this. Well, AI has not quite arrived there. Okay. Drones have. And Fedorov, who's the minister, the digital minister, who was his PR guy, essentially, to become, with Zelensky's to become elected, has become quite the force because the drone strategies are controlled by him. And he has proposed an army of drones. This is all public. Right. right to try to use drones to sort of dislodge the 100-year-old technology that are used today. There's evidence that these FPV drones, which I didn't know anything about, first-person view drones, are essential because they're so inexpensive and they're so dangerous to the other side. And these are kamikaze drones? Yes, they are single shot, if you will. Single shot. So the drone itself is finished with when it's... And the components typically come from China or other countries. They're assembled very quickly and they're used by skilled operators to move faster than you can see them. And how much do they cost? Uh, $500, $1,000. Uh, for, for reference point, the U.S. drone industry, the MQ-9 drones, uh, right. the ones that we've used for years, which are very important to us, are millions of dollars in cost. Could we do the same thing? I mean, you've been talking about trying to revolutionize the technology behind our own Defense Department. Um, I've been looking at a doctrine which we call Offset X, which is to think about autonomy and decentralized defense, if you will. Right. Uh, think of these as swarmable systems that, that help us and keep our country safe. I think that's the right long-term doctrine. Militaries are slow to adopt for many, many reasons. We're going to see if this approach works and helps in Ukraine or not. When you think about what we saw over the weekend, how do you think it changes, if it does at all, what's happening between the relationship between Russia and China and, frankly, our relationship? I'm not an expert in that, and I haven't talked to them. Um, At the moment, China seems to be supplying both sides. And you don't think that's going to change? It's hard to know. Okay. Um, let's talk AI because we keep, you know, we're all consumed by yeah. ChatGPT and generative AI. Where are we really? And do you think that there's going to be a change? I mean, we keep hearing that there'll be even another step change this fall. So, so the industry is organized now with this incredible competition, which benefits all of us. GPT-4 has set a new standard. Right. I'm aware of two more com- companies that have announced that they have even better, most incredible products you're ever going to see in the next six months. That's how my industry works. Right. And of course, after that, there are startups that have even better things coming. So we're just at the beginning of this enormous wave of capability coming. After that, the industry believes that there's another step change, which involves, think of it as planning, the ability to say, how do I solve this problem? And it says, do it this, and then this step, and this step. We can't quite do that, but people think it's achievable. Um, Who are the two companies? Uh, Well, the obvious ones that are publicly announced are OpenAI in partnership with Microsoft. Right. And Google and Google I.O. talked about a new product, which is uh, they've hinted at called Gemini, which they say is better in every regard. There's also another company, uh, which is in general use now, but has not de- announced its details, a startup called Anthropic. Right. Um, and where is um, inflection in all Inflection of this? is it's another one, one coming. Um, they just released an app called Pi. It's the human friend. It's right. different from the others because it's trained to be incredibly empathetic. None of this stuff still. I mean, you, it's so impressive in many ways. And then happily, at least for those of us in the writing business and other things, say it's, it's still not there. Does it ever really get there? And what does there mean, you think? It will eventually. 
Um, I used to think that it would take 20 years. Now I think it's five to 10. I think the advances are coming faster than we've ever seen. There's more money. These systems, by the way, it's important to know, one of these new systems will cost next year a billion dollars to train, right? So these are enormously expensive. And so it's the genius of the American financial system that we can raise that right. kind of money against business plans that today don't foot. We can't actually show how the revenue works. And yet there's such optimism that these systems will be transformative for education, for drug right. discovery, for science, et cetera. If you're, if you're a betting man, and we have a lot of people who watch our broadcast and are trying to bet on this stuff, do you bet on the incumbents? Do you bet on your former company, Google? Do you bet on the Microsofts of the world with their partnership with OpenAI? Or do you say this opens up the, the whole playing field to all sorts of new players? Well, look, I always bet for Google. Come on. Okay. But the fact of the matter is it's a green field. The startups can now get the talent that they need and the capital they need at a level that I've never seen before. So I think we're in for the most exciting race we're ever going to see. Much, much tougher and more interesting than we saw in PC right. versus Mac and in the various internet challenges. Where do you put Apple and where do you put Meta in all of this? So Apple is the obvious great user of this technology and should use one of the systems that I described or one of the open source approaches. Right. Meta released a, a technology called Llama that was then subsequently leaked to everyone. Meta has announced that they're considering doing a similar licensed version at a similar point. At the moment, Meta is not building the high end, it's building right. what I would call the middle end ones. What do you think of the idea of this being open source versus being a closed box? There's also a debate, and this is something that Meta's talked about, you know, open, opening up what they're doing to the public. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's talked about this idea that Everyone should be able to inspect the code and understand it, while these other services may be a black box. So we have always had a tension in our industry between centralized and decentralized and open source and closed source. I think the frontier models, these really expensive ones, are not going to be released to the public. You're going to use an API. And the reason is there's just too much money in them. I don't think it makes sense for those businesses to just give it away. We'll see what they do. Right. On open source, there are now startups that are going to build open source models that are competitive with the Llama product uh, from Facebook. These are order 100 billion parameter models. And then their, their business model is to also release the open source model and then work with a company for their proprietary data and get a lot of money for that. I think that one's going to work. So that's an example of a new strategy that's just emerged. Right. Uh, Barry Diller, as you may know, uh, is working with a number of media companies, including The New York Times and Wall Street Journal and, and others, uh, potentially to sue uh, both Google and Microsoft, OpenAI together, uh, over the idea that a lot of this content that's going to, to, to power these things is really theirs. What do you, how do you, how do you well, think uh, about that? A, a really good example here is Reddit, because a lot, a lot of the training that goes on in these systems comes from the public web. And there's a tremendous amount of information inside of Reddit that is, that is going into these models. If you ask the model where it got this fact or this idea, it cannot today tell you. Right. So today, the copyright question is not technically solvable. Um, you, could you could essentially eliminate any copyrighted information, in which case, how would you search the web? How would you do Reddit? How would you do human conversation? Somebody quotes somebody and so forth. We don't today know how to solve that problem. And so what happens to the economics of all of that? And, and how is that being thought about, do you think? Well, or it isn't? Well, first place, people are definitely right. thinking about it. We just haven't solved it yet. Typically, when these technologies come out, the incumbents are always terrified that it's going to screw up their model. And they miss the fact that these technologies create a whole new model, 
right? It's not that people are going to consume less information. They're just going to consume right. it differently. Search will be affected because these systems will be smarter. Does it make Google stronger or weaker? That's, Google has announced its answer to that. The important thing is that this new technology is arriving. It's going to change the economics. Right. There'll be winners and losers. You were super optimistic about this, but there is a level of concern you have, like a big level of concern. So what is the immediate risk in front of us? The biggest concern that everyone in the industry has is that these huge models um, essentially have polymathic capabilities in places that are dangerous, like synthetic biology or cyber and so forth, that without the appropriate guardrails, technically right. called AI safety, um, if those are not in place, they can be misused. If you look at GPT-4, for example, they did a really good job of putting guardrails around the system. The raw, the raw model is much right. more powerful than the one you're playing with. That's a problem we're solving. But now. when people say that AI is going to you know, take over humanity, it's going to... They, they've but, watched too many but, movies. But what is that, though? What, that, that, but, but, that's a movie. But what is the, what is the thinking that gets you there? What would, what would have to happen? How so, would, so here's the assumptions. Okay. This is all speculation. First, you have to have memory, you have to have planning, and you have to stop hallucinating. You also have to be current. Under that scenario, you get and you say to the system, learn everything. And it learns everything, and then eventually it learns that you're less important than it. And it takes electricity away from you because it needs electricity. That's the movie. The, the, the real scenario goes something like this. At some point, these things will have human-like capabilities. They right. don't today. And at some point, now this is years away, they'll be able to communicate with each other. That's called superintelligence. When you think about, though, the immediate security risks, I mean, one of the things that is already starting to happen is AI is effectively building its own viruses and doing its own attacking. It's, it's not correct that it's doing it itself. Humans are telling, telling it to, it to do, do that. That's important. It can't make the decision itself. The short-term danger is misinformation. For example, the 2024 elections are going to be a mess because social media is not pro protecting us from false generative AI. Right. They're working on it, but they haven't solved it yet. And in fact, the trust and safety groups are getting made smaller, not larger. Right. This is a big issue. How do, you, how do you think we should deal with misinformation? And I would also say, I don't know, very recently, uh, Google, which owns uh, YouTube, made the decision uh, that it used to be that on YouTube, for example, if there was election denial, frankly, that was something that wouldn't even uh, appear on YouTube. They've undone that. So I'm strongly in favor of human speech, not computer speech. Okay. Right. So free speech for humans, not computers. So what social media should do is mark all the content, know who the users are, and hold people accountable if they violate the law. That step alone would cut down the worst excesses. It doesn't solve the problem of you and I disagree on facts, right. but at least it establishes a basis that these are humans who are making these claims. Apple uh, put out its Vision Pro. Yes. What do you think? It looks like a fantastic product. Do you think it's going to be a huge, huge winner? The problem with all of these goggle situations is I actually like to see the world around me. We haven't right. quite figured you, out. Well, you were, you were there at the beginning yeah. with, with Google Glass. So, so at the moment, these are gaming solutions, and they're fantastic. I don't think they've quite figured out how to live in the world with the goggles and the real world around us. They're working on it. Uh, and then finally, uh, cage match uh, with <laughs> Zuck and, and Musk. Who, who, are you, who are you betting on? In that cage match. What do you think is going on? By the way, how does this even happen? You, live, you come from the valley. Why is this happening? Uh, in that match, I want to be the ref. You want to be the ref? And you cannot explain what's going on? I think that people have gotten a little ahead of themselves. <laughs> Eric Schmidt, thank you very, thank very you much. Thank you very it's much. It's great to see you, as always, educating us on so many different issues.
some trip out there, Sorkin. Beautiful. You're a lucky man. It's beautiful. Um, I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Right from here. (laughs) That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. <laughs>